This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come once again to our time in the Word, I thank you and I praise you for this gift of truth and comfort and mercy and grace that you've given us, how you have revealed yourself to us in your Word. I pray, Lord, that you would do that again. I pray you would reveal yourself to us, your sovereignty, your power, and through that, the hope and the comfort and the peace that we have in you your strength. Father, all this we know is, is ours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so it is in His name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue our series in looking at the small books in the Bible in Habakkuk. If you want to head there in your Bible, say that five times fast. Uh, Habakkuk is just to the left of Haggai, if you remember where that was last week. Um, and Habakkuk is, is, is a short book, but it's not as short as, say, Philemon or Haggai. So we're going to spend a few weeks in Habakkuk. But while you're turning there, let me ask you a few questions to get you ready for this study. How do you feel our country is doing? Would you say we're headed in the right direction? Are we headed in the wrong direction? Are you already singing, Jesus take the wheel? <laughs> the reason I ask you that is because, judging by some of the groans that I heard, I think our answers would probably be very similar to Habakkuk's answers regarding his country. The year is about 640, 630 B.C. We don't know for sure. Uh, Israel had already been split into two kingdoms, and the, the northern kingdom, Israel, had already been taken into exile, conquered by Assyria. However, in Judah, the southern kingdom where Habakkuk lives, a king by the name of Manasseh has recently died after reigning for 55 years, one of the longest reigning kings for Judah. Problem was is he was also the worst king, the most evil king, the Bible says, that reigned in Judah. Um, by the time he was done, they had forgotten where the Bible was. Uh, king after him actually found it again. Uh, they had completely stopped all the feasts, all the sacrifices, uh, except for the sacrifices of their children uh, to idols in the temple. They, they kept that sacrifice. And horses, I learned that this week. They also were sacrificing horses. Is bad. It's in this setting that Habakkuk comes to God with some questions. See if you can relate. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence? 
and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Does that ever, does that sound like how you ever feel about our country? Maybe when you think about a million abortions performed a year in America alone. Or when you think about the education system openly promoting depravity and condemning righteousness. Or when you think about the the skyrocketing rate of violence and murder. Or when you think about the application of justice no longer being about the law, but about personal and political bias. When you think about those things, does what Habakkuk says sound like how you feel sometimes? So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when those in authority have so much power over our lives while at the same time we have so little power to do anything about it? What are we supposed to do as we watch righteousness and godliness and justice disintegrate around us? Well, the book of Habakkuk is pretty clear on that answer. His answer eventually will be, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's going to be our theme for this study in Habakkuk, is that the righteous shall live by faith. But before we get there, I don't want to read too quickly past Habakkuk's anguish. Notice in verses 1 through 4 again how Habakkuk says, he says, look at all this sin. He says, look at all this sin. And I want you to see the, that there's a progression to what he's saying. Look again at verse 2 where Habakkuk says, Why do I cry out for help regarding this violence that's everywhere? He says, yet God, you don't hear me. You see, Habakkuk knew he was helpless to effect change on his own. Because not only were the people against him, but the authorities were as well. And as hard as he tried, he couldn't talk them into being right. Meaning he felt like not only was he unable to affect change, but he also felt like he was kind of being sucked into this vortex of depravity and wickedness. Like it's getting so bad that he can no longer avoid being affected by it. So he's crying out to God. You ever feel that way about our culture? Like not only is depravity increasing out there, but you can't ignore it anymore. It's beginning to have an effect on your life. Like do you ever feel overwhelmed by the fact that that the reason everything in our entertainment industry is absolutely saturated with sensualism And perversion is because that's what sells. That's what our culture wants. Or how about the wickedness that has permeated our school systems, that that openly indoctrinates our children with lies and deliberately promotes depravity as the norm. But if you as a parent say anything, you are condemned and ridiculed and silenced as being ignorant or uneducated or worse, uh, an extremist. 
Perhaps you found sanctuary in a private school or a home school, but do you ever wonder how long that might last? But like I said, notice the progression of Habakkuk's complaint. In verse 3, he says at the beginning of verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Did you catch it? Did you see how the focus of, of Habakkuk's complaint shifted a little bit? His complaint in verse 2 is passive in a way. God didn't hear his cries for help. But now in verse 3, he asks God, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Now Habakkuk's asking, why is God actively involved in my misery? Do you ever feel that way? Like, how can God allow all of this to happen? How can God look at all of this sin that is in our world that we see all day long, all this immorality, and do nothing? For example, I wonder if, if you've noticed this, but doesn't it seem like somehow COVID and the whole lockdown issue has given our nation an excuse to quit acting like civilized people? And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we were before. But, but doesn't it seem like God isn't doing anything about how our culture has thrown off the shackles of pretension? But more like, like a starving person eating themselves to death, uh, our culture seems just committed to voraciously pursuing sin as fast as it can. And it seems like God is doing nothing. Look at the, the final movement of Habakkuk's argument, his conclusion in verse 4. He says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The end, he says, but when it does go forth, he says, justice goes forth perverted. You felt that way lately? Like justice is being perverted? Like, doesn't it seem like our government agencies have, have openly joined the assault against decent people? Using the courts to intimidate and attack like innocent people. Or that, that activist judges who have sworn an oath to remain neutral and enforce the law, they routinely pervert justice to promote their own warped beliefs. While at the same time, some of the highest judges in the land claim to not know the difference between a man and a woman. They throw the book at decent people while they refuse to prosecute those who prey on the innocent. Like, like intimidation and assault, even murder is deemed peaceful as long as it's done by people whose ideology aligns with the powers who be. But someone praying for, for pregnant mothers outside an abortion clinic, which is the modern-day version of child sacrifice in our culture, I was raided by SWAT teams and arrested and sentenced to prison. And all of this, if you try to say anything against it, other powers who have colluded with our government actively try to silence you. Or to look at it from the other side of the glass, because it looks like some of you might be about to cry. As we watch our culture descend into wickedness, is, is there anything that brings you any amount of hope? Is there anything that brings you any relief to those feelings? Like maybe when you see an innocent person actually acquitted, 
Or, or maybe when you see a politician finally stand up against the politically correct machine. Or maybe when you see a, an online personality you know, confront some crazy person just screaming depravity. Or maybe when an investigative journalist uh, secretly infiltrates a, a wicked organization and exposes their true motives. Does that give you some relief? Maybe when you see a wicked, power-hungry, abusive, narcissistic politician finally get thrown out of office in a landslide election. I mean, don't those kind of things feel a little bit like a balm? Doesn't that bring you some comfort and hope that maybe normal people could still rise up and turn things around? Like maybe there are actually enough of us out there to right this ship. Well, earlier I asked you a question. I asked you how you thought our country was doing. But there's something in the Bible that we need to consider before we lock in our final answer. <clears throat> as we read this morning in the call to worship, as Job and Daniel both said, that it's God that changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. When Jesus was being questioned by Pontius Pilate, Pilate said, why won't you talk to me? He said, don't you know I have the authority to either release you or, or put you to death? To which Jesus answered, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Or Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now listen to verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Which means this, listen, when we look to answer the question of how we think our country's doing, the fact of the matter is, the question the Bible says we're actually asking is, how do you think your God is doing? When we look at our country and, and, and ask that question, how do you think our country is doing? The Bible says the question we're really answering is, how do you think your God is doing? Because he's the one that institutes it all. In fact, that's the question that Habakkuk is asking. Look one more time at, at verses 3 and 4. Habakkuk asks God, why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you make me see iniquity? And then in verse 4 he says, because the law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. But, but when it does go out, it's perverted. Meaning, Habakkuk's complaint is that God was the one that gave them this law in the first place. And, and his complaint is, is, God, it's your law that's not being followed. It's your law that you're not enforcing. In other words, for Habakkuk to call the law paralyzed is to call into question God's character, since it's his law that's not being enforced. So what's the answer? How does God respond when Habakkuk says, look at all this sin? Well, I love God's sense of humor. 
If you haven't picked up on it yet, there's a lot in this passage about what Habakkuk sees. If you look at verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, says in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look at wrong? So God, picking up on this theme, says in verses 5 through 11, you want to see something, Habakkuk? Then look at this. Look at verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle's swift. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for for violence and all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, they, for they pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. In other words, when Habakkuk says, God, look at all of this sin, God responds with, hey, Habakkuk, you want something to look at? He says, look at all my sovereignty. He says, look at all of my sovereignty. And in fact, God says, in the second half of verse 5, Habakkuk, you seem so certain about what you're seeing right now, but if you could actually see what I'm really doing, you wouldn't even believe it. And that's the truth. Notice how God perfectly describes the Chaldeans, we know them as the Babylonians, because here's the interesting thing. He's describing a military that wasn't even a world power yet. Meaning the beginning of of verse 6, it would have surprised Habakkuk because he would have expected to say the Assyrians. It would be like if we complained to God about God, look at all this sin. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm raising up the French to punish you. Okay. But notice how God perfectly describes how this world power that doesn't actually exist yet, how they would do what we know that they did do. Notice first, and and again, there's a progression here. Notice in verses 7 and 8, God describes their approach. He says in verse 7, basically, their reputation precedes them. Uh, But soon after that, they arrive because their horses are are swifter than leopards and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour at the end of verse 8, which turned out to be one of the hallmarks of the Babylonian military. They moved very, very fast. But second, that approach soon soon turns into the actual attack in verse 9 through 10. The beginning of verse 9, he says, they come for violence and all their faces are forward, meaning none of them are scared. You can't scare any of them into retreat. Their faces are always forward. In fact, at the beginning of verse 10, it says, they look at the kings they're up against and they laugh. Because third, in the second half of verse 10, soon that attack leads to conquer. They pile up siege ramps and take their enemies one after another. And no sooner have they wiped one nation off the face of the earth than in verse 11, God says, lastly, they move on to their next victim. He perfectly describes how the 
the, the Babylonian army moved, even though they weren't there yet. The point is this, brothers and sisters, God's saying to Habakkuk, you're looking in the wrong direction. The reason you're asking these questions, the reason you're having these, these feelings is you're looking horizontally, Habakkuk, instead of vertically. Brothers and sisters, the same could not be more true for Christians in our culture today. You see, fear and anxiety and doubt and worry, no matter what the cause, these emotions all stem from the same place. We see something horizontally. We see something concerning happening here and now. And we worry and we doubt and we fear because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know how it's going to, to turn out. But just like Habakkuk, the problem is when we let those emotions consume us, what we're really doing is projecting our ignorance on God. It's as if we're saying that not only does He not know what's going to happen, but worse, that, that we're concerned we're worried, we're, we're doubting because we also think he's powerless to do anything about it. However, however, when we take a moment to redirect our gaze and look again to the Lord, to stick with the theme of this passage, we see rightly. For example, when, when Eve had her first son, Cain, she must have been certain that she was holding the promised one that God had, had said would, would fix everything. But when she realized her firstborn was actually a murderer, all must have seemed lost. But how could Adam and Eve have even begun to comprehend everything that God had planned? They couldn't. There's no way they could have comprehended that, but that doesn't mean he was standing idly by. Or when Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers, how could anyone imagine that God was still at the wheel? But he was. I mean, Joseph himself told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But listen, that didn't happen for 40 years. They couldn't have figured that out if they tried. But that didn't mean God was standing idly by. Or what about when Israel was then enslaved by Egypt? I mean, certainly God had lost control at that point, right? I mean, who in their right mind could have fathomed that, that God's plan to fulfill His promise to Abraham, that He would be the father of this vast nation, how could anyone have fathomed that that was going to come by that nation being incubated in slavery? Nobody. But that didn't mean God was standing idly by no, 400 years later, he revealed that that was all part of his perfect plan. But all these, these horrible stories of injustice that were misunderstood by the people at the time, those were only foreshadowing something far worse, an injustice that would be far worse. You see, the definition of justice is that the punishment fits the crime, that, that the consequences are commensurate to the wrongdoing. 
That's what justice means. Meaning we could theoretically look at the given punishment and deduce the crime that occurred, or at least the degree of the crime that occurred. Like if we looked at the justice of, say, probation versus life in prison, we could at least conclude the level of offense of each of those crimes, which means this. What can we deduce about the crime when we look at not the probation, not the 5 to 10, not even the, the life sentence, not even just the execution of, but the mocking and beating and crucifixion of the completely righteous Son of God? What can we conclude if that was the justice? What does the unjust death of Jesus Christ on the cross at the hands of the very people he created, what does that say about the crime that you and I have committed? It says this, listen. It says that even when we see teachers openly, bald-faced, leading children into sexual deviance, it says that even when we see authorities forsaking their oaths, oaths for their own personal gain at the expense of the people they're supposed to serve, it, it says that even when we, when we see unborn babies aborted in their millions, that there was still a more heinous injustice that occurred. That's what the cross says. That regardless of what we see today, a far more heinous injustice has already occurred. It says the injustice of our sin being laid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ was hands down the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. But listen, the unjust death of Jesus Christ, it says something else though, doesn't it? What that means though is, is if that was the greatest injustice ever done, then the cross also screams to us today that even in the face of the worst injustice the world has ever seen, God was still in control. Even while the Son of God hung on the cross, suffocating to death, God was still in control. The death of Jesus Christ, it shouts loud, that God has already proven that even an entire civilization's rejection of God in the flesh can't change God's sovereign plan. That's what the book of Habakkuk is about. It gives us answers to the, to the crazy difficult theological questions concerning the hopelessness and despair that we can feel when the wicked seem to be winning. It tells us that even when the wicked appear to have the victory, that God is still accomplishing His will. That His justice will still be upheld. That His justice will be thorough, even if it doesn't occur when we think it should. Which is why the theme of Habakkuk is that the righteous shall live by faith. But more specifically, the, 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 the first thing I want you to see in this book through our passage this morning is this. The righteous shall live by faith that God is not standing idly by. 
The righteous shall live by faith that God is not standing idly by. The things that are going on in our world right now, they, they haven't slipped past him. And we believe this because we believe what's written in this book. We believe that God's justice will not be usurped. Whether it be in our own personal lives or on a national scale, we will live by faith that even when it seems darkest, God's not standing idly by because He's proven Himself over and over and over again to be sovereign, which ultimately means this. I've titled this message, One Nation Below God. Because regardless of how bad it gets, no matter, no matter how much havoc and chaos and wickedness that those in power can bring, we have to remember that our nation is still subordinate to the will of God. We have to remember that our nation is inferior to the will of God. Which means this, even when we see the powerful and the corrupt in our culture preying on the weak, and even though it seems like those who abuse their power are going to get away with it, and even though in those times it's really hard not to ask the same questions that Habakkuk is asking, we must join Habakkuk as we, as we move through his book in reorienting our gaze. Looking to God instead of the problems. Because what we see in our passage this morning is this. And this is a promise, not my promise, this is God's promise. That those smug, self-absorbed, power-hungry, abusive, narcissistic, entitled scoffers of God. Whether in this life or the next, they are going to stand before their maker one day. Why? to face the justice that they perverted. And we rest assured that, that no amount of power or money or influence is going to keep our God from wiping those arrogant smiles off their face. But until then... Until then, because our God has proven Himself faithful, we will live by faith that He is not standing idly by. What does that actually look like tomorrow? What does, what does that faith, our faith, that God is not standing idly by, what does that actually look like during the day? especially look like during the day-to-day -day when that faith requires more and more faith. Let me give you three things the Bible says this looks like. First, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that, that even though everyone else has, has thrown righteousness and justice out the window, we are to keep our conduct honorable. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's foreigners. You, ever, you felt like a foreigner recently in your own country? It says to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, as our culture descends into wickedness and becomes really tempting to play by their rules, like, fine, you want to lie? I can lie. I can play by your rules and get you back. But you and I live by a faith that God is still in control and we simply keep doing what he's told us to do. So that on the day of judgment, what Peter is saying, so that on the day of judgment, they will glorify God by having to admit that we were right. Which leads to the second thing that this passage, uh, that, that Habakkuk tells us that this looks like day to day. In light of this coming judgment that we know is, is, is here, then what is it exactly we're supposed to do? What is that good and honorable conduct? Well, one of them specifically, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is this. Beginning in verse 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In other words, because we know the truth, because we know what's staring down the pipe at every single person we come into contact with, that everyone is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because we know that when they do, there will only be two options. Option A, believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins. Face the judgment that you should face on your behalf. Believe that, escape the judgment, and spend eternity in heaven. Or option B, don't believe in Jesus Christ and face the judgment of all of your deeds. Be judged by your Creator to spend eternity alone in hell without anybody else and without God. Because we know those are the only two options. Because we know that fear. He says, day to day, we are on a mission to persuade others of their need to place their faith in Jesus Christ before they stand in front of His judgment seat. But that leads to the last thing that I would say this morning, that living by faith that God is not standing idly by. The last thing that that looks like is you see that endeavor, that task of trying to persuade others, of keeping our conduct honorable. How does the Bible say that's going to go most of the time? Well, the Bible tells us it will often lead to more persecution and more hardship and more difficulty. Not always, not always, don't, don't get me wrong. It will lead to salvation and joy as many times as God wills it to, and that alone will make it worth it. But the Bible tells us it will often lead to more anger and ridicule and isolation, which means the third thing that the Bible tells us, that the righteous living by faith that God is not standing idly by, looks like. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. What's going on in our country? Where is this? Why is this happening? That's what Peter's saying. Don't be surprised when America goes down the tubes and it causes problems, like something strange is happening. But rejoice. 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Think about what Peter is saying. He's saying, rather than freaking out about how, how our country is descending into wickedness, he says, rather than that, rejoice in how much easier it is to share in the sufferings of your Lord and Savior. Like, yes, our government is getting more corrupt. It's easier to suffer. Peter continues, why? Why should we do that? It says in verse 17, because it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those that do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, verse 19, listen. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, brothers and sisters, as we watch our culture descend further and further into darkness, and as the same questions that Habakkuk has asked, they continue to creep into our hearts and minds. Let us be those who even if we suffer according to the will of God, let us be those who entrust our souls to a faithful creator while we keep doing good. Why? Because we believe, we know that he is not standing idly by. Let's pray.